two nonprofit consultants, one a fundraising expert from New York City, the other a search and strategy specialist from Los Angeles. Two nonprofit podcasts, both vying for chart topping glory, but for one day putting aside their ambition and uniting for one very special episode. It's the moment you've been waiting for, but you didn't know you were waiting for it, but now you do because we told you. Nonprofit on the Rocks and the Nonprofit Lowdown present Nonprofit Lowdown on the Rocks, hosted by Ria Wong and Matt Kamen, featuring interviews with Ria Wong and Matt Kamen. Stay tuned for the epic nonprofit podcast crossover event of 2022 or at least of next week. Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen at Envision Consulting and your host of this fantastic podcast. I hope you enjoyed that introduction. Ashley spent all of New Year's working on that for you. And Ashley, our our producer, how you doing, Ashley? Oh, you know, Matt, I'm living my best life here. Got a kid who tested positive for COVID who's been home for going now on a month. If you combine Christmas break, he's been to school for three days out of a month. So yeah, no, I'm not going crazy at all. It's totally fine. You've you've won the lottery for 2022 already. (laughs) Absolutely. I would call it uh, an inauspicious beginning. Well, if I know you correctly, because you have to now stay at home and because you're now forced to stay at home, I can't think of anything you'd rather do than work on this show. I have to say, the show is my one bright spot. Matt, here we are. This is the first episode of 2022, because it's taken us a little bit. You know, we were busy during the holidays and everything, but here we go. First episode of 2022. Let's talk for a second about our goals. What are our goals, our resolutions for 2022 for Nonprofit on the Rocks? Our one single goal for 2022 nonprofit on the rocks is to be top 10 on the charts of every nonprofit show in the country. That is an excellent goal. And our goal for Envision Consulting in 2022 is to continue to expand nationally and to do more executive searches and have more clients around the country. Because as I think I told you before, we have a client in Kentucky, we have a client in Milwaukee, we have a client in North Carolina, like we're, we're all over the place. And that is my goal for Envision Consulting. And then, you know, continue to just take over the world. That's the goal, Ashley. That's the goal. I I love it. My singular goal for 2022 is to surpass my perpetual state of mediocrity and get to what's my next level? What's, what's right above mediocrity? What's, what's it? Let's be reasonable. Okay. What's a reasonable goal? Cause you know how people give themselves unreasonable resolutions and then they just that, you know, they crap out by the end of January. What's a reasonable goal for me right above mediocrity? So the first thing that's popped into my mind is subpar, but that doesn't feel like that's better than mediocrity. Yeah, that feels like that. that's more like just a synonym for mediocrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I was thinking below average, but I feel like also that's not... Yeah, we're still in synonym territory. Right. Why don't we aim for just average? I mean, isn't mediocre kind of average though too? No, no, no. I go for like, how about this? Slightly above average. Oh, Okay. Is that, is that ambitious? That's real ambitious, Ash. Like that's real ambitious, but like, I could, I like to shoot. I like to shoot high. I want to reach. 
Okay. So I feel like slightly above average is attainable if I really work at it. Okay. And and if you fail and end up being average, that's fine because- I still failed right, up. You still moved up. All right. So you're going to be slightly above average by the end of 2022. And our show, our little show is going to be top 10. And we're going to surpass Rhea, and we're going to surpass Laurel, and we're going to surpass Julie, all of the other podcast hosts that we have interviewed for this show. And Envision Consulting is going to take over the world. And there it is. There it is. I love it. I think it's reasonable. I think we have put it into the universe, Matt. All right, my slightly above average producer, can you tell <laughs> us a little bit about it? I'm already there. I'm already there on January 12th. You've already deemed me. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Now that you've timestamped the show, you're back down to mediocre. <laughs> Dang it. I was so close. Tell our audience member about the show coming up. Yes. So we truly are super excited to have Ria Wong of Ria Wong Consulting. She is a fundraising expert out of New York City, phenomenal consultant and expert in the nonprofit space and Yes, as Matt said, she has her own podcast and Matt and Rhea interview each other on this episode, which is really fun. And I have to say, I know it seems like I'm reading this off a cue card, but I'm really not. I found you, Matt, to be an amazing interview um, as well as an interviewee. So I think this is an awesome episode. Thank you. I love crossovers and we will talk about crossovers at the end of the show. And with that, Ashley, I think we're ready to go. Okay, everyone. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Rhea Wong. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm so glad to be here. I'm, I'm go, getting over a little bit of a cold, so I sound like throatier than I usually do. But yeah, that's kind of fun. That's, that's fine, because I went to my cousin's uh, Persian wedding last night. If you've ever been to a Persian ceremony, they party. And I am so hungover. So On a Sunday? That is really intense. I know. Everybody who's listening, I'm beyond hungover from last night. And even still, Rhea and I are going to do a little cheers because this is still nonprofit on the rocks on my end. So uh, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a lovely mezcal that is by Del Maguey, which is a small producer out of Oaxaca, Mexico. Nice. And I'm, because it's 11 o'clock in LA and I don't want to be an alcoholic, I'm just drinking a little bit of Prosecco. And oh, cheers. A little bottle. So cheers to a good 2022, even with Omicron, which by the way, sounds like a transformer. Doesn't it kind of sound it like It totally does. I'm so glad you said that. I was like, what a terrible day. Or like, or like an evil media empire. You know what right? I mean? Like, right? Yes. Omicron video is watching you. So to Omicron going away, cheers to- Cheers. Mm. All right. Not my favorite, but here we are. So you and I both have uh, podcasts and what we decided to do for this show was that we were both going to do it and then air it as our own podcast, even though it's a joint podcast. And so I figured what we could do is that I'll just start off with questions for you. We can have a little conversation about fundraising. And then if there's anything you want to ask me at the end, we can go from there. Sounds fun. I mean, I, I love a two for one deal. I've never actually done a two for one. Well, I could, I've never done a two for one. <laughs> Not that we could talk about on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, Keep I, it I, PG, people. We do keep it G. So yeah, I've a two for one podcast. Anyway, so this is, as, as kind of we talked a little bit about, you are all about fundraising. So first, I would love for you to tell our folks out there what it is that you do. 
So I was an executive director for many years here in New York, 12 and a half years to be exact, which for those of you who are EDs know that that's like 50 years. And in that time, I I was a 26-year-old ED. I didn't know a thing about fundraising. So in the 12 years that I was there, I raised the budget from 250 a year to just a little under $3 million in private funds. And I was like, why did it take me 12 years to figure this out? This is ridiculous. And so I made a pivot when I left the organization to teach people how to fundraise, specifically with major gift individuals, because... It took me 12 years. It shouldn't take you 12 years to figure it out. I've made the mistakes, so you should make new and different mistakes is what I tell my students. I like that. I like that a lot. You know, we do we do a ton of uh, board retreats, and one of my favorite questions is, hey, like on a scale, to board members, right? On a scale of one to five, with five being, I mean, I love it. It's the most amazing thing. All I want to do is ask people for money to like one being like, I'd rather poke my eyes out than ask people for money. You know yeah. what? And truly, the majority of board members are like, I'm a one. Like, I don't want to fundraise. So what is it about fundraising that you like so much? Oh, my gosh. Matt, I'm so glad you asked this question. So I've been thinking a lot about this, and I have a blog. So I was thinking about today's blog post. But I think it's a couple of different things. So number one, I think we all have baggage about money. And even if people are wealthy, everyone has baggage. And so I think we assume in the nonprofit sector that because you're wealthy, you don't have baggage about money. So like number one, really coming to terms with the baggage about money and the baggage that we have about money or, you know, sometimes the trauma that we have about money is really wrapped up with our own personal stories about money. So if you grew up in a family where, you know, everyone worried about money. I mean, in my family, it was like, well, money doesn't grow on trees. And who do you think we are? The Rockefellers? Oh, no. oh, we can't afford that. That's for rich people, right? So the message I always got was like, there's never enough. And we always have to freak out about and stress out about money, right? I'm sure this sounds very familiar to folks out there. Or, you know, I've also heard from the other end, people whose families really were like very loose with money. And like, we never really talked about money. Money just sort of flowed. It flowed in, it flowed out. And so it's like this mysterious resource. So I think number one, it's we all have a money story. I think number two, we don't provide enough training for our board members because, I mean, the truth is most EDs have never received actual formal training in fundraising. So how are they going to teach their board members about fundraising? And then number three, and I think this is sort of the core of it, is people think that fundraising is about asking for money. It's not. The core of fundraising is asking for people to participate in a cause that you believe in and that they might believe in. It's about the relationship. It's about putting the work in the center of the conversation, not the money. And so when you're asking your board members to go out there and ask for money, essentially it's like the equivalent of asking them to go into a bar and just ask people to marry them. It's like, that's not obviously going to work. Or if it does work, it's probably not someone you want to marry. Instead, fundraising, really good fundraising is about relationships and it's about invitations. So that's what I love about fundraising because it's actually not about the money. It's about the relationship. But tell me more, Matt, from your perspective, is that, does that uh, square up with what you've perceived and observed with boards? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting, actually. You are totally right. It is about our upbringing and it is about that. But I had, you know, it's interesting. I never really thought about that. And when I asked board members, hey, what is it about fundraising that freaks you out? What is it about fundraising that you just 
don't want to do, right? What they say is, I just don't feel comfortable asking my friends for money. And I think, you know, what is so important is what you said. Like, it's all about the relationship. And it, if you sit on a board, and this is the other thing that I don't think people understand, is that when you sit on a board, you are taking on all the liability of the organization. If they get sued, you get sued. And so, and if they look well, you look well. And if they don't, you don't. So really being passionate about that mission, really understanding what the programs are, that's key. Because if you're not interested in it, if you're not passionate, obviously your friends aren't going to be. So that's what I always tell them. Like, you've got to really understand and care and feel this organization and live and breathe it. If you do, your friends and your family will will come right behind you. So that's- Yeah. Two, two things that um, come to mind with what you just said. Number one is I think- we we so often get into this transactional mindset of like tit for tat like oh if i ask my friend for this then they're going to ask me for that right so i think number one getting out of that transactional mindset and more into this idea of i'm offering them value so if i'm part of this organization and i find value in it then wouldn't it be uh, a benefit to my friend to also invite them to participate in this thing that i found to be so beneficial to my life so I think number one is realizing that you're coming with value. And then the second thing is that people are really freaked out about looking dumb. I mean, ultimately, that's the thing, right? And so Laura Friedrichs has a book called The Ask that I recommend everybody read. But in it, she writes that, you know, you should clarify the ask and then brainstorm 15 possible things that your friend might say and then what you would say in response. So you're going into the ask already having mentally prepared all of the different things because at the end of the day, no one wants to look dumb, right? And the last thing you want to do is to look dumb in front of your friends. Like that's super embarrassing. So we as staff need to help prepare our board members so that they don't feel dumb. So I really like that. And so I'm going to give away, I'm going to give away my like number one tip. Um, so when I do board retreats and I try really hard, like I haven't, well, we haven't done them in two years in person. But when, when I do board retreats, the question that I always ask the board members in the room is, here's a check for $10 million. Here you go, Rio. Here's $10 million for your organization that you're on the board of right now. What do you do with that money? And I will tell you that every single person around the table, first of all, like they had never thought about that. And then everybody has a different answer. And so the, the problem with that is if you're going out asking your friends for money and they ask you what you're doing with that money, you know, if you have a different answer than everybody else, that's not great. You really want to get on the same page and understand as a whole what the vision is for the organization, where you want to go and what you're doing and how you're going to get to there. And so that's one of actually my favorite questions, period, is, hey, here's your check. Here's your money. If I'm your friend, what are you going to do with this money? How do you, you know, how do you want to spend it? Why is it so important? Why is yeah, I think when you're prepping and brainstorming the questions, there are really three things that you want to touch on, which is why me? Why now and what's it going to do? And so you need to have total clarity about those three answers that you're going to potentially give to your friend. I mean, the other thing is people don't ask their friends because they think it'll be awkward. But the truth is that if it's a close friend, I might be offended that you didn't ask me, right? Like, oh, so you don't think that I'm that I can or would or should give to your cause. And so in a way, I think we have to remember that it's an invitation. Like it's a party that we're throwing and you have to figure out who wants to be invited, but no one's going to be offended if you invite them to a party. They can say no, that they don't want to come to the party, but it's never going to hurt to invite them. I love that. That's so fantastic. Such a great way to look at it. And by the way, I am very offended. People don't invite me to their parties. So I got to put that out. Right? There. 
I so I have two questions for you actually. I think this is so this is so this is so timely. So I have a friend who's the founder of an organization. It's a great organization, and it it's you know plant nature food based organization. And she's having a really hard time bringing in the dollars that she needs to really grow the organization. It's a new organization, and it's hard. It's really hard when you're you know look, counting on your friends and they don't give or they give a little bit. It's it's demoralizing a little bit for her. So. How would you, as a fundraising expert, what would you tell my friend who's like, I'm beating my head against the wall. I don't know what to do. It's, it's, it's killing me that I can't bring in this money. And I just, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. What would you tell my friend how to stay in the game and just keep going? Wow. Um, well, I'd have to talk to her more, but off the top of my head, I would say number one, I think I would probably do some work with her about her own money mindset. I think so often we come to the fundraising table with a scarcity mindset of like desperation. And I, I love a dating analogy, Matt, but you know how like when you're single or when you were single and you hadn't had a date in a while and it was like kind of desperate and you couldn't catch a date to save your life. And then the moment you were in a relationship, everybody wanted your number. Mm. Well, I'm just going to favor you. Everybody wanted my number anytime I went out. So no okay. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Matt. For some of us mere mortals, there was the, uh, this, that sense. And, so number one, people can smell the desperation. So don't be desperate, right? Believe that there's some pile of money out there with your name on it and that your job is just to go find it. And so that changes your mindset to like grasping, to just be like, okay, well, this is like a fun game now. I can just go out and, and talk to people. So that's thing one. Thing two, and I find this is particularly true with founders, they talk too much. So in an ask, I say 75% should be your donor. 25% you. And so when you're, a, when you're a founder, you're super passionate. And I, am, and I love that. But you basically talk over people. And it's like, blah, 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 blah. And they're trying to figure out how to get a word in edgewise. And at the end of the conversation, they're, they're like, okay, that was nice. But they haven't engaged. You haven't learned anything about them. So what I suspect might happen is that she's probably over-talking. And then the third thing that I might say, uh, two, two other things that I might say. The th third thing is I would really look at her board. So if her board are her friends, which is often what happens with the founding board, then she's not opening any new networks. Mm -hmm. So it was Jim Rohn who said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Spend time with the people that you want to get in the door, not the same people who are not giving you any money. And I find with founders, they, they tend to like to stack the board with their friends because their friends will, will give them carte blanche to do whatever they want. And then the fourth thing I would say is, does she have a bold and compelling vision? I mean, bold people are attracted to bold ideas. And so if her ask is, okay, well, we just need you know $10,000 to do this like small thing, that's not really going to excite people. And particularly people who want big things and big impact. So those are the four things I would say, knowing nothing about her situation. No, and I, I, I realize that. And I, I so appreciate more than anything, I so appreciate number three. Because I think when people start organizations or if they're founders, you're right, they have friends on the board or family on the board because you're right, they want, A, it's who they know, but also they really do want that carte blanche to do anything if they want. And that isn't going to get you new people. It just won't. And so really getting out of your comfort zone, bringing in people who, who aren't your friends and aren't in your, in your group, so huge. So 
I love yeah. that. Well, and the fifth thing that I'll say is, again, let's think about dating. I really encourage people to do some thinking about their ideal donor avatar, much in the way that you might do when you're dating, right? So when I try to set my friends up, which by the way, I've not successfully ever done, but you know, it's very hard to help someone if you're like, well, what kind of person are you? And they're like, oh, well, you know, nice, funny, has a good job. You're like, well, that's super generic, right? Like, I, I don't, I can't help you if you don't. Now, I don't think you should go super, super, super specific. Like, and they have to be 5'10 and have gone to this college, da, 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 da. But you have to have more of a general idea. But more, more importantly, you have to understand what is the worldview or the outlook of the person that you're trying to target? Like, what, what way are they looking at the world and what impact do they have that matches with what you're able to do in the world. And that's ultimately why I love fundraising. It's just about matching people's desires with the work. I'm going to just, I want to just back up for one second, because this is what makes me a good host, because I remember things, right? Except when I'm totally hungover like I am today. But I, I, I want you to know, I have set up two marriages. I got one more to go, and then I feel like I'm in heaven. I set up a, a gay marriage. I set up a lesbian marriage. I just need the straight marriage. I gotta be honest, these straights are so hard to get together. And like, for me, it's like, come on guys. So one more, I got one more to do. So if you have a single friend out there in New York, I have tons of single friends out there in New York. Let's let's make it happen real. Let's get a marriage together. Ooh, I would like, so funny thing is Matt, I've done lots of professional marriages. Like I've introduced people, gotten jobs, gotten them funders. I've yet to make a romantic match, but let's, Let's go through the Rolodex because I got some I got some good folks out here. Oh, I love this so much because you're right. I, I so I do I do recruiting for a living and it's the same idea. I'm matching people to their jobs and I love it. I love everything about that. And I think it comes from me wanting to be a matchmaker. And truly, if I could do anything else in the world, it would be a professional matchmaker. What was her name? Patty, the million dollar matchmaker, right? On what was it like Bravo or yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I, I 100% agree with you. I was like, I'd be such a good, like, Jewish mom matchmaker person. Like, what, what, what's happening with your apartment? It looks like an axe murderer lives here. We need to fix this. So amazing. We need, you know what? Here's what I think. I think you and I get out of the consulting world and we create a joint, like, company and podcast just based on relationships. And- I mean, Matt, that's a million dollar idea right there. Plus, okay, wait, can we talk about this? Here's a million dollar idea matching Asian women and Jewish men. Boom! Oh, God, but see, think about the Jewish guilt. Think about the Jewish guilt from the moms who are like, but my kid needs to marry a Jewish person. Like, Oh, my God, are you kidding me? Jewish moms love Asian granddaughters. Are you kidding me? Rhea, you're going to get such hate mail. I didn't say any of it. You're going to get (laughs) hate mail. It's true. (laughs) Listen, I used to live in Stytown, and and this is before it got all uh, corporatized. And I would ride the elevators, and like old Jewish moms would approach me, you seem like a nice girl. Do you have a boyfriend? You should meet my Joshi. He's a doctor. Did I mention he's a doctor? Like, I, I could have just ridden the, the elevators and gotten a million dates. Oh, that's the best. I love all. Okay, that's fantastic. We're totally starting this company. We are. We're, start, we're totally Let's starting. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's a, a side hustle, as the kids say. No, right? It's totally a side hustle. And actually, what's really interesting, have you ever done um, something called Strengths Finders? It's like a... Yeah, a- yeah, yeah, yeah. Love so- it. 
My number one strength is competition. If folks haven't taken Strengths Finder, it's one of my favorites. And why I'm telling you this is because this weekend I went into Charitable and Charitable is how we in the podcast world kind of see like where we live up and what numbers we are and how many people are listening to our shows out there. And I am three shows behind you, Rhea. Three shows behind you. So I'm catching up. I just want you to know I'm catching. Oh, I didn't even know that that was a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. It's well. Don't forget, I'm all about competition. So, oh. like, uh, but just so you know, you are kicking butt in this world. I think you're like top ten on one, top twenty on another. I mean, people really? love you. Yeah, they love you. They love. Oh my you. god, I didn't know that. I because I always feel like nobody listens to it. Like I. Look at my downloads. I'm like, they're probably on my mom. Like, I have no idea who's listening. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go stalk myself after this. No, it's true. Well, it's who's true. number one? I, I think we, we both just need to figure out who's number one and unseat them. Do you know what though? Here's why it's gonna be impossible. Here's why the number one nonprofit podcast in this country is a church. And here's why it's because their entire congregation downloads the show, which is unfair to us who don't have churches. So maybe you and I just need to like do a church day and just do a show from church. I mean, Matt, in, in, in a sense, isn't this kind of like going to church? Mm. I'm just saying. Mm. Yes. Yes. This is it. This is this is church. And like, that's my goal. My goal today is that you and I just like take down that podcast. That's what we're going to do. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I've been at this for like three years and you just started so you're you know in terms of time you're probably doing much better than i am i mean look let's not let's not compliment ashley we can't let it get to ashley head. so like oh my gosh this is the jewish mom guilt coming out in you <laughs> ashley this is not good enough <laughs> no, but it's the only way she's gonna like do better I mean, <laughs> this is the only this is the only feedback she understands <laughs> Oh, she's going to quit my show and move over to you, which, you know, I understand. I get it. I get it. It's okay, Ashley. There's a warm place for you at Nonprofit Lowdown. After all, we're 29. <laughs> all right. So to go back, I have one last question in the fundraising world, which I think is really, you know, really important. And that's if we've kept our listeners today and they haven't moved over to the church podcast, if I am a director of development at a nonprofit, right, and and part of my job is to work with the board and get board members to kind of have a connection to the organization, go out, identify friends and ask for money, or at least I can help. What do you think is something that or a few things that I should be doing with my board members if my executive director lets me to yeah. help them get money? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's such a good question. So this is like the number one problem, right? I'm sure this is your bread and butter. Like, how do I get my board members to do stuff they don't want to do? I, so number one, the first thing is you're never going to get board members to do what they're not going to do. What they're going to do is ignore you. So I think the key is number, and this is, I'm giving away all my secrets here, but my number one activity to do at board meetings, first of all, is to help them understand the whole cycle of the donor journey. So I think board members think that fundraising, again, is about asking for money, but it's really just 2% of the overall cycle, as you know. It's it's about identifying, it's about cultivating relationship, it's about solicitation, and then it's about stewardship, right? So first of all, helping them understand that because a lot of them don't know that. And then the second thing is to brainstorm possible activities that they could do relative to each step of the cycle, and then to create a board menu and have individual conversations with each person about like, okay, what are you willing to do this year? Because look, the truth is, you know, I use this story a lot. I had a board member who was you know, quite wealthy and she was like, look, I am willing to do anything, but I will not ask my friends for money. Like full stop, that is just not what I'm gonna do. 
which, you know, on the outside was like, okay, well, that's problematic for a board member. But, you know, the other pieces, we were able to find other things for her to do. She really loved hosting things at our beautiful, you know, Upper East Side townhouse. So we said, okay, great. Would you be willing to host a friend raiser for us, you know, twice a year? happy to do that right so i think part of it is you have to find the thing that they're willing to do and then help them do that thing and then also you know it, it sounds a little bit infantile but really like celebrate every step because they are nervous and the more you can reinforce and provide support the more likely they are to do it and then the other piece is and that is you know take the best and leave the rest right like there's some percentage of board members who are never going to do anything and i feel like we spend so much time and energy beating our heads against the wall for those, you know, 20% of board members who aren't going to do a damn thing for you. Focus on the ones who are, who are going to go with you, right? Focus on the ones who are actually going to do stuff. And I think you'll see a lot more dividends and, and eventually over time, really think about how to develop a board that will continue to kind of upgrade itself. Like I had this great podcast interview with Birch Berlin here in New York, and he talked about looking at his board and, and constantly, you know, cutting the bottom 10%. It's like always thinking about how you can continue to upgrade. So it took me six years to get the board I finally wanted. So it, it, it's a long game. I don't know. Did that answer your question, Matt? I think so. I mean, this is, you know, I, 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 I think at the end of the day, what I really want people to, to listen to, at least my podcast, I'm assuming for yours as well, is like if they can get one or two nuggets just like, you know, to leave the show with and be like, yes, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do things differently. Or this is what I'm, this is the one thing I got from the show that I'm, I'm going to succeed in. That's my goal. And so I think boards are one of the biggies. I think obviously, you know, continuing and not giving up on the fundraising piece and then end of the year giving. And actually I have one last question and I promise it's on you at that point. You can ask me anything you want. I don't know if my listeners care that much. Do we think that they're going to go back to galas again? What are you thinking that nonprofits should be thinking about for 2022 and what kinds of events should they be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, so my bias is I, I don't love events, but I recognize that it is an important part of the resource generation process. I mean, here's the truth of the matter. Generally speaking, events kind of suck. <laughs> like it, you know, it's rubber chicken dinner, you know, here in New York City, it's the kind of last quarter and then spring season of galas, right? I personally am not keen on galas. And so I would love if we as a sector just decided that we would stop throwing boring galas and really rethink how to do a presentation that was really engaging and was more experiential, particularly because I think a lot of the folks who attend galas are used to being able to afford awe-inspiring events, right? They're used to being able to go to the opera and whatever. And so I think there's a real opportunity to inspire awe and to inspire something really noteworthy, something remarkable, as in worthy of, of being remarked upon. And I think the old stale, we're going to trot out like the rubber chicken dinner and then do all the speeches and da, 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 is just old. And it may continue to work for a while. But I mean, again, maybe this is my personal bias, but like, I don't want to go to any. So I don't imagine other people want to go to any either. 
Yeah, I think the one lovely thing about being on Zoom and COVID was that all the galas that they were going to do in 2020, they did online. It was great because you didn't have to go. You can stay in your pajamas. You, you still gave money away. And you didn't have to listen to terrible uh, speeches and not eat terrible food. It was great. And yeah. so yeah, I really hope that nonprofits in 2022 and, and beyond stop doing those terrible rubber chicken dinners. Well, the other thing is that they commit the cardinal sin of talking about themselves too much, right? I think that's really the the problem with galas. It's like, look at this, we do this, we do this. And they need to make people feel special. Like I think about Danny Meyer, who is a restaurateur here in New York. The secret to his success is he says, imagine everybody is walking around with an invisible sign around their neck that says, make me feel special. So we should have galas that make people feel special, not like we're corralled them in and are going to talk at them for three hours like shoot me in the head i would pay money to not go to a gala that's so fantastic make me feel special that's okay that's that's the number two nugget for today and finally for people who want to find you who need you who need to hire you tell me two things number one if a nonprofit is thinking about bringing you in why would they think about bringing you in and, and what are you so excited to do for them and then the most impossible question and i apologize for asking you this in advance Give me like something you're so proud of that you did as oh, a for a nonprofit. Yeah, thank you for that question. So in 2022, I'm actually not for hire. So the only way to engage with me is to enroll in my group accelerator coaching program. And so that is an eight week program where I work with mostly EDs, but some development directors around creating a major gift program, a major gift strategy. So that is my big offering for 2022. And I would say as far as what I'm proud of, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think my podcast is something to be proud of. I'm, I'm 29 on the charts or whatever I am. But really, it's been a lot of fun creating a platform for my friends to be able to share their brilliance. And I am publishing a book early 2022. So that is the other thing that I'm pretty proud of. It, it's a many months in the making, but I finally did it and it's coming out TBD, but probably end of March self-publishing. It's called Get That Money, Honey. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's your church. That's church right there. That's church. That's church. Yeah, that's right. Everyone gets the Bible and we're going to go to church. That's amazing. So I, I think that's awesome. And actually I, I'm going to, I lied. I have one last question for you and then it's on you. If I handed you a check for $10 million, here you go, here's a check for $10 million. What cause, not nonprofit, what cause would you give it to? Oh man, it's so hard. There's so many causes. And actually this is uh, the reason why I started my accelerator program because I realized that I care about so many things. And I was like, well, I'm not gonna be able to help every single cause personally, but what I can do is increase the capacity of people who are working up on all sorts of things that I care about. But that being said, very long-winded way, can I can I split it between two causes? I mean, you're going against the question, but sure, split it in my guess, that's fine. You can't, you can't force me to follow the rules, Matt. I can't be tamed. Well, education, which is what I came up in youth development and education. So obviously I, I believe very strongly in you know, the way that we're going to ensure our future is to providing an education for young people to actually think critically about the world <laughs> and to engage as citizens and participate in politics. So that's one. And then number two, I, I think everybody should be really concerned about climate change. I mean, this is the most pressing issue of our 
time. And I think if we're not all collectively very concerned about this, then I don't, I don't know what world you're paying attention to. So probably those two things would be my top. Plus, I, I love animals. Who doesn't love animals? <laughs> That's three. All right, you've completely gone against it. No, but climate change and the animals, you know? It's like sure. the animals can't live in a, in a world that's warming up. Sure. All right, fine. I'll give both of you. All right, so that's that's all I got for you. And because this is a joint podcast, if you still want to release it on yours after after my questions to you. Yeah, you let, me, let me flip the script. Me, so, Matt, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Envision Consulting. Oh, I'm so not used to this anymore. I'm just so not used to this. So I come from the nonprofit space. It's in my blood. I ran a homeless shelter in New York. I ran a foster youth shelter in Hollywood. And my business partner and I started Envision 11 years ago. And in a nutshell, what we do is we're a national firm. We have an office in New York. So I'm going to come, you and I, this is what I'm saying. And we're going to do our dating kind of company. I'm going to come visit you in New York and we're going to like go hang out. And we're just going to brainstorm this company. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, there are many lonely hearts in New York City. I'm telling you. I know we're going to do this. Remember, we need a straight marriage. We need a straight marriage for me. For me. Okay. Wait, wait is that like a scorecard you have? Yes, there's a scorecard. If you have three marriages, then I, I'm, I'm making this up. Maybe somebody out there can like DM us and let us know if this is actually true. But I think if you have three marriages, like you're one step closer to heaven. I feel like that's, I feel like that's what it huh. is. And I okay. want to and I want to be inclusive. So if I had a gay one and a lesbian one, it's time for us. I got to like give something back to the straight people. I know. Well, do you get like big gay wings? I, I do. I get, I have a toaster. I have a toaster <laughs> and I'm working up for that microwave. Uh, but anyway, so we have an office in New York and we are about 60% search. So we do a ton of recruiting for nonprofits and we just actually got a client in Lexington, Kentucky, which is so cool. And then we do strategy. So we don't do fundraising, but what we do are strategic plans. We do board retreats. And the biggest thing right now that's happening in the market is mergers. And we're doing a ton, a ton, a ton of work. Totally. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because I feel like M&A for the longest was like anathema to the nonprofit sector. And now with constraints being what they are, it just makes sense, you know? So, so tell me, what are the sorts of positions that you're recruiting for? Because I had someone on my pod recently to talk about the state of development directors in nonprofit. So I'm curious, is it primarily development directors or is it EDs? Like what, what's the trend that you're seeing? Ugh, development is so hard right now. Right now in this economy, it is impossible to find people because everybody's getting recruited and, and you know, it's it's just a really difficult job market. In development, it's even harder because normally it's hard to find a really good fundraiser. But at this moment, finding a true fundraising professional who's willing to leave where they are, who will take a job that's offered to them, it is so so difficult, so challenging. And so we're trying actually to limit the development searches that we do, but but we do mainly CEO searches. We also do a ton of CFO searches lately. That's a big thing that's happening. And then, yeah, we do a lot of development searches and we, you know, we have something really cool. So here's my only salesy pitch. Sorry, my, my only salesy pitch. We have two different kinds of search options. So you've got like the executive search, which, you know, costs a lot of money and it's the whole recruiting thing and guarantee. But we also do something called the supported search. So if you are a small nonprofit out there, or if you're looking for like a middle management position and you don't want to spend the big bucks on a search, that's what we do supported search for. And it's basically we act as the back office and collect resumes for you. It's a great option. So I would tell you to, to think about that if you're a small nonprofit. There that is a really good option because like I've I've paid for the full search and that is expensive. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> tell me something, Matt. I was wondering about, you know, much has been written recently of the great resignation. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that in your, in your search processes. So it's actually been really interesting. So I think six months into the pandemic, we saw a lot of CEOs who were looking to retire anyway. They were like, I'm out. Like, I can't do this anymore. I'm out. And so there were a lot of CEO positions that were open at that point. And then fast forward to now, people have made it through. They've they've gotten their organizations through. And so they're also now retiring. And that's why you're seeing, by the way, a lot more mergers, because when you had a long-term CEO and they've been there for a long time, you know, as they leave, it's time for the board to think about a merger. So that is happening. And that's why I think there's a lot more CEO searches going on right now. But what is really interesting is because of that great resignation, and I think because people are, A, wanting to take time off or there really are a lot of people who have either retired or resigned or just kind of like, waiting around and not not working. It is harder to find good people. Everybody's paying more money right now. I just placed a CDO at an organization making 225. Like that's a huge amount of money. That's why I should get out of this consulting world. We're, we're placing a CEO at an organization that will with bonus probably at some point make a half a million dollars a year. It's in sanity. So what I would say is not only right now with the great resignation, with people leaving, are more people doing it, right? And I get it because we've gotten through COVID and people are just tired. And I also think people are changing professions and going, probably leaving the nonprofit space because it really has been challenging in the nonprofit space because we've had to work. I think that's the other thing for people to keep in mind. A lot of us out there are like, well, I don't want to go to the office, so I'm not going to go to the office or, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to drive in traffic anymore, but I don't think people realize that in the nonprofit sector, that really wasn't an option. And for so many nonprofits that are hands-on, that are true social services, they didn't have that option. They had to go to the office. They had to work in the office. And so I think you have a lot of people who are just tired and aren't doing that anymore. And I do think that that's something that we all have to realize and be thankful for that, you know, so many nonprofit professionals stayed in the office, but that's also why it's so hard to find people right now. Yeah. I mean, and I I must be honest, I think I'm making your job a little bit harder because I'm telling all of my ED friends to go off on their own and start their own businesses. Mm -hmm. I mean, at, at this point in my career, I am completely unemployable. Like I can't imagine having to report to a board and manage a staff anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is, I think what, I would love people who are listening to our podcasts to understand is that if you are not a nonprofit professional and you are thinking about going into the nonprofit space or you're a board member or you don't really understand, you know, how nonprofits work, you would probably agree with me. It's impossible to be a nonprofit executive director. Impossible. Because you've got a board to deal with who are all your bosses. You've got staff who are usually unhappy. You've got to raise money to to meet the goal. People don't want to give you money because they're like, what are you spending this money on? It shouldn't be on overhead when you need to spend money on overhead. And it's an impossible job. And so I hope that anybody who is listening to this really does understand and appreciate people who are in leadership of nonprofits because it is really hard. And so I fully understand why your friends are like, nope, I'm out. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, I listen, I agree with you. I mean, I think boards are always sort of perpetually an issue, but I think more and more, there's just been a lot of challenge around the younger generation and, you know, the, the, I guess they're now Gen Z, but, you know, the millennials, the Gen Z, they're coming into the workforce having never had a job, like, you know, prior to actually having a job. And so there's a lot of training and handholding around professionalism. 
Plus, you have this like very strong woke mentality, which look, I'm all about progressive wokeness. And I think sometimes when you're working with a younger generation that doesn't really understand sort of the boundaries to professionalism, it can get a little out of hand. Like, I don't know if you saw that New York Times article about the 30-somethings are afraid of their 20-something employees. <laughs> I think, it, anyway, I think it's a really hard balance to strike. I remember the last couple of years, I, w I was receiving a lot of pushback, not even from my employees per se, but you know, our college-aged interns about fundraising. And one of them was like, how do you justify taking money from Goldman Sachs when they're responsible for like most of the financial inequities in the world? And I was like, well, first of all, that's not a question. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, just wondering, do you like your salary? Do you like the nice lunch that we provide? Do you like the materials that we're providing for you? Yeah, that comes from money that some of which come from Goldman Sachs, right? Oh. So I think there's this, I don't know, this, this idealism that is hard to square with the reality of running a nonprofit. Yeah, no, I agree. And that is, uh, you said that and I got already exhausted. It, yeah, it's exhausting, you're right. And there are, look, there are certain organizations, if you're running like a school, for example, you probably won't take money from like marble, you know, marble. Yeah, sure, I mean, I'm, those are like very extreme cases, but you know, when, <laughs> you have young people who are like, well, we need to examine like all of the money and where it's come from. Like at the end of the day, isn't all money at some level kind of dirty money? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how you, I don't know, maybe there's some other like answer that I have not come to, but like, I don't understand how you're trying to run a nonprofit if all you want to take is money that has somehow not been exploitative or tainted in some way. Like Right, right. And, and the other thing that I think is really important for folks to listen to and to understand, a lot of the times what I find is that programming staff, right, those are the staff that work with the clients hands-on, usually will say the executive team, meaning the executive director or director of development, don't understand what I go through. They don't understand what I'm dealing with, right? They live in like this like castle and they don't understand what I'm going through. And that cannot be further from the truth. And that's also really exhausting for executive directors and for leadership because staff don't appreciate what they do. Staff don't appreciate what we do. And so the one thing I will just say yet again from my soapbox, I think I told you I wasn't gonna do it, but I'm gonna do it again, is that I really would love to see senior leadership engage those junior leadership, the junior positions, case managers, all that in how, what you go through on a daily basis, how a budget works, where the line items come from, how do you raise that money? So you're answering that question about this is what we need the money for to be able to do this. When we say, hey, by the way, you can't do this because of the budget, here's why. And by the way, if you really want to have these programs, maybe you can help us and do some fundraising. So I think that that's really important too, both for top up, top down and down and bottom up is to really have those conversations so that everybody on the team understands how a nonprofit works. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. I would say that probably extends to the board as well, right? Like I think their understanding of what an EE does or even what a program person does is very limited. And obviously we don't want them in the weeds. We don't necessarily need them to micromanage, but I do think once they understand the reality, particularly of the work that we're doing and the stakes, you know, I'm wondering if perhaps the tone of conversation might be different. I think it does. I've had staff complain to me about, you know, why they had to share an office, for example, or why they had to wear a uniform or, you know, all those great things that have to do with budgets that have to do with how you're funded by contracts, all of that. 
And so I do think, again, you know, you get everybody as best you can on the same page and we all understand this is why we do it this way. This is the reason why things have to happen. So I do think that that, you know, that's one of the things that's really important. And so when we're looking for people that we place into positions of, of leadership, we really want to make sure that that person is inclusive, does bring people together around the vision, because you have right. to do that with the board and you have to do that with your staff. Okay. Can I ask a, a question about strategic plans? Sure. So I have a very strong point of view on this, which is, you know, to quote Peter Drucker, the strategic plan is nothing, but strategic planning is everything. I know very often what happens with strategic plans is, you know, people engage folks such as yourself. They spend a lot of time, they spend a lot of money, and then it ends up on a shelf collecting dust somewhere or, you know, metaphorical digital shelf. And so I'm wondering, is there a way that you're thinking about strategic plans that is more dynamic in nature and sort of less less of a heavy lift? Because I know it's a pretty considerable process. Such a good question. And I a thousand percent agree with you that most consultants and most nonprofits who do strategic plans, they do it A, because they're funded and they have to, or they feel like they need to do it. And then you're right, it goes in the big binder and it goes on a shelf and nobody ever does anything with it. We don't do that. That's really important that when, when I talk about what we do in our strategic planning process, it isn't about the final product. It is about the conversation. And, and it's really about making sure that we have that vision for what we want to do. And then we work on that, right? And first of all, you have to get everybody together. You have to get everybody together, which is impossible on where they want to go and your core values and your core mission and your vision and all of that. Great. And then you're going to figure out how to get there. And that's the piece that matters the most. And when things happen, like, for example, the pandemic or other things that happen, you have to be willing and okay and able to pivot. And so what I do think is a really important part of the conversation is just that. What happens when things go south? What happens when things change? And to really, if you bring in a consultant, to make sure that your consultant also has those conversations with you. Because at the end of the day, if all you're doing is to have that actual physical plan, just like in a notebook, it's a waste of time. Don't do it. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. It's really about that conversation. And it's about, again, going back to why you do what you do. So I'll take my shelter in New York, right? The shelter that I ran. If my shelter no longer exists, is it the end of the world, right? Is it the end of the world or, you know, what, what happens? And so I think that that's really important to think about. Why are we here and why are we important and why are we vital? Are we just doing it because we're doing it? Or is there a purpose? And what is it and how do we make it happen? Well said. And I'm so glad you said that because I, you know, when I hear strategic planning process, I start like getting itchy. <laughs> it's a bit of a soul sucking process, but, but if it's done with the intention of having the conversation, I think it's a different bend to it. Well, those are all the questions I have, but Matt, where can folks find you on the interwebs? Sure. So you can go to envision with an E, envisionnonprofit.com. You can find all of us there and all of the information, the clients that we have, the searches that we have. I will tell you that if you are looking for a job, this is the time. It is your market. It is not an employer market. It's an employee market. So if you're looking for a job, like now's the time. And feel free to ask for the world. Ask for the world because at this point, you know, we're really looking for phenomenal people. And then in terms of strategy, in terms of mergers, a big part of what we do as well. So you can find more information about us there. And Rhea, I just want you to know, I'm so excited about these this joint podcast because you and I are going to take down that church 
and we're going to be like number one and number two in the world. I do this for fun. I don't know how much business you get out of it, but like I do it for fun. I really enjoy it. I get to meet people like you. I get to have a good time. I get to really, I hope, have a platform for people to listen to it. And yeah. so if you're out there and you look at our website, you can also find all of our past episodes. And we've really interviewed some phenomenal people. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't know that I think I've ever gotten any direct business from my podcast, but certainly people have used it as a way to research me, which I totally get and is fine. But mostly I do it because I enjoy people and I enjoy learning stuff. So that's that's why I'm in it. So if somebody wanted to be on your podcast, right? Like, because you you know, you've been doing this, like you said, for three years, but if somebody wanted to be on your podcast, who are you looking for to interview? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. So first and foremost, and I want to direct this to all the PR agents out there, the pitches I get are usually really, really bad. And the reason why they're bad is that they do not demonstrate to me that you have any knowledge about what it is I actually do. And you don't tell me what it is this person could present on, right? So like that to me is like, it saved me some time. So if you're not doing either of those two things, I'm probably deleting your email straight away. And then the third thing, interestingly, is I'm particularly interested in folks who do not usually have a platform. So BIPOC and BIPOC women in particular. What's interesting is, look, I get pitches from white men like every day. White men do not have a problem pitching themselves. It's women of color that I have to go out and search for because inevitably they'll, they'll say things like, well, I don't know anything. Like, do people want to hear from me? I'm like, yes, I want to hear from you. And so if you're out there listening and you are a BIPOC leader, please email me and pitch me and offer up something that you might be able to share with my audience because I'm trying to create a platform for people who don't normally have platforms to publicize their points of view. That's, that is, by the way, so important. And it's the last thing that I would also like to add is that when we are doing the final stages of placing somebody in the job and we're doing the salary negotiation, always the white guys are like, well, you're offering me 100. I want you to pay me 200. And it's people of color, it's women of color who are like, yes, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it. And so it's really important. And I love that you said that, that white guys have no problem pitching themselves. They have no problem asking for the world, but we all have to do that. And so I hope that anybody listening just remembers that you should be asking for everything in the world because you're worth it. And I would also tell you that we're looking for some really great leaders to be on our podcast as well. So anybody out there who wants to pitch us, well, by the way, Ria, I think that we've made it in the world when we have terrible pitches. Like I think we've made it when like the marketing people know who we are and then, yeah. I guess, but it is also just like kind of annoying. Like, who are you? Why are you pitching me on this? Like, have you listened to my podcast at, at all? Like, no. why do you think I'd be interested in this? No, but yeah, I mean, oh, but here, here's like a third little tidbit that I want people to take away. Whether you're in a fundraising ask, a proposal, or negotiating a salary, I call it the Chad tax. What would Chad do? Chad being, you know, the the douchey, you know, frat boy who thinks that he deserves the world, right? Huh. What would Chad do and then do that? It has been lovely, but since this is a joint podcast, I won't end it. You end it with whatever you want. All right. Well, I will just say thanks, everyone, for listening in. This conversation with me and Matt is super fun. So catch us before we start our other business of uh, matchmaking for folks. And thanks so much for joining. Take care. Thank you. Hey, Ashley. 
Hey, Matt. So, like, how was this crossover episode? It was crossoverlicious. That's a word that I think I just invented, but I think it's the only way to really describe how awesome it was. I cannot think of a better word than crossoverlicious. It was crossoverlicious. So what is your favorite crossover episode ever? Okay, so I was thinking about this as we were talking about crossovers and I think my favorite crossover, and it's not really an episode, but it was something that was done and it was when Friends hired uh, Lisa Kudrow to be Phoebe. She was already on Mad About You playing Ursula, the dim-witted waitress on Mad About You on NBC. And so the way they played it was that's why they made Phoebe have Ursula as her twin. So so you were constantly having like the crossover between Mad About You and Friends. And um, I think even at one point they had Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser on Friends, just doing a quick cameo. And I just thought that was really clever and fun. I had no idea. Okay, so- You didn't know that? No, I had no idea. That's so cool. Okay, so I will tell you as a gay uh, child in seventh grade, I used to watch the Golden Girls on Saturday nights. God rest Betty White, by the way, what a treasure. We are both devastated by that loss. I know. Anyway, right, pour one out, everyone, for Betty. He really was like the best, the best character. So I remember when, remember like Dreyfus, Dreyfus used to Dreyfus come the over. dog was from Dreyfus Empty Nest. Dog. Yep. And so Empty Nest and the Golden Girls would always come together. And so I would always watch Golden Girls and then I would watch Empty Nest afterwards. And weren't they like supposedly neighbors yes. in like Palm Beach or wherever yes. they were in Florida? Yes. yes, they were. And I think the doctor showed up on a Golden Girls episode once because somebody was in the hospital and he was taking care of her. So Richard like, Mulligan, wasn't that his name? Okay, what does it say about me? Fill in the blank that I know this much about Empty Nest and the Golden Girls. I think what that says to me is that you are a gay man in <laughs> a woman's body, which by the way, by the way, totally makes sense why you got Mark to marry you. Totally makes sense. <laughs> wow. Wow. There was a lot to unpack there, but I'm going to go ahead and take the gay man in a woman's body thing as a compliment. And um, I think it's a very sound explanation for why I know an insane amount about like these shows that really only old people were supposed to be watching and gay men in the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, my favorite crossover event now, of course, is the Rio Wong Matt Cayman nonprofit lowdown on the rocks. Yeah. That which we're calling this episode. That was great. And so I hope that our listener out there not only listens to this one, but then also goes to Ria's and listens to hers. And then, as I think we talked about, I want a DM. If you think that Ashley, our subpar mediocre producer, is good enough to now be above average producer, if you can compare the two. Yeah, this is going to be a real test of of whether or not I am failing up or failing down. So it's a this is on you like this is a true scientific experiment if you ask me <laughs> i did ask you and um okay well we'll be waiting we know that the hypothesis is that i'm moving up but we will see in the results of the experiment you know from the dms and the reactions what really is is the the, the turnout so well thank you so much to our listeners for listening as a reminder you can find more information about this show and all of our past shows at in visionnonprofit.com slash podcast. We are also on YouTube now. 
So um, find us on all the social media channels as well. Let us know how we're doing here in 2022 and we will see you all next episode.